Welcome aboard! We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime! Ready when you are, CB! Action! Welcome to Monoreal Radio, episode number 47. I'm Sean. And I'm Jackie. Happy to be back in our home studio, displaced for a few weeks after a tree fell on our house. We thank the members of our family that let us crash with them, but we are happy to be back. I have to say this, though. I'm glad we got to test out our, our little uh, Sony portable recorder last week because it got the job done. Yeah, and we know we're going to be bringing it to the parks in November. Yes, although I, I hope we never have to use it again for the reasons that we did last week. Yeah, ideally, that's the only time the thing ever comes out of our pockets. That or some sort of media event. Yes. Fingers crossed. Big release this week, though, uh, the quote-unquote live-action remake of The Lion King. Live-action remake in quotations because it's not live-action. There's not one live-action actor in this movie. So for all intents and purposes, this is just a CGI remake directed by Jon Favreau, who did the remake of The Jungle Book. You can go back and listen to our review of The Jungle Book remake back on episode number three. Yeah, Favreau was able to get away with that just that time because Mowgli was live action. So unless they put a human in this movie or like Scar the hyenas off someone, it, it really doesn't make sense to call it a live action remake. I'm cautiously optimistic here. Like right now, the movie has a lot of bad reviews. It's rotten on Rotten Tomatoes, which really at the end of the day doesn't mean anything because I wonder a lot of critics didn't like it because they said it's a shot for shot remake and it's not really a retelling. But if you listen to our review of The Jungle Book, and of course we haven't reviewed the film yet and sorry to bury the lead, but when you eventually listen to our review of the live action Beauty and the Beast film, in those instances, I would have been just happy. I would have been just fine with a shot-for-shot remake, rather than somebody trying to take liberties, which is also why I'm cautiously optimistic, because the same director that did The Jungle Book is working on The Lion King, even though I really do like Jon Favreau. I do, too. I've always been a fan of his. After what he did with The Jungle Book, I definitely trusted him with this one. Um, and I'm definitely looking forward to this cast. I, I think they've got a good ensemble put together. So... We'll see. We'll see next week. But the original one, it's very significant in the Disney catalog because this was at the end of the Disney Renaissance because really this was kind of the last one. And, and very significant to people of our generation. You know, Jackie's 33. I'm 32. I'll be 33 in October. So not too far behind you. And Thanks, for, thanks for that. Yes, of course. But um, this was really the last big one of that Disney renaissance that they spoke about in Waking Sleeping Beauty, which we also reviewed and had Randy Cartwright on the show. This one sort of tied it up. Yeah, I mean, as much as I love Pocahontas, Mulan, Hunchback, I don't really lump them in. I mean, you can definitely call them Disney classics, but I don't really lump them into this era quite the same way. Right. Because it was a different team of executives behind it um and as good as those films are they just don't have the same feel the same feel as these four films meaning the span from the little mermaid to the lion king though those to me that is just the hallmark of disney right and this was the last 
Disney animated release with Jeffrey Katzenberg involved with the studio. Frank Wells passed away before this came out, but he was still pivotal in the making of the film. In fact, the film is dedicated to him. And this is kind of where the friction between Roy Disney, Michael Eisner, that's where a lot of this kind of came to a head. Yeah, if you've seen Waking Sleeping Beauty or if you listen to our review, um, you know, that's the documentary that touches on this era of Disney. Um, Prior to The Little Mermaid, the company almost went under. And really, it was Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin and Lion King that saved it because the films were obviously amazing and coupled with the incorporation to the parks and the out. Right. So you would think that's the happy ending for Disney, but what a lot of people don't know about is all of the butting heads behind the scenes. Normally when uh, Disney, Disney pictures releases a film, they do a big reception with the cast and crew, which I believe they usually have a couple of the executives or the producers speak at these receptions and what they did this time around was a video intro because these people couldn't stand to be in the same room with each other. Yeah, basically. So even Roy, which was kind of disappointing. And he didn't really say an awful lot. No. I think his uh his video was something along the lines of um great job on a marvelous movie on the way to the next movie. Like well, it was like literally basically yeah. all he said, yeah. almost verbatim. Um so this one sort of drew the end of that era, um, which in many ways, when you know we're about to the plot of this film, it's kind of poetic that this is how it tied up. Um, the film starts with all of the animals gathering at Pride Rock for the presentation of Simba, their next king. And of course, we meet Simba. We also meet Mufasa. We meet Rafiki. Uh, tons of different characters in this film introduced right in the beginning. We also meet Scar, uh, who is King Mufasa's brother. He's upset that Scar skipped Simba's presentation, Mufasa being very upset. Simba and Mufasa watch the sun rise, and Mufasa explains the great circle of life and the real responsibilities of the king and how to keep things balanced. Because Mowgli, or Mowgli, there, see, Mowgli, there oh I go. I'm already going into Jungle Book. Um, because Simba... Simba's a child, and he has sort of a very child-like way of looking at things. He thinks that because you're the king, you just are all-knowing and all-powerful, and you can kind of do whatever you want. And, of course, Mufasa explains to him, not always the case. We also meet Zazu, who is King Mufasa's right-hand man. And Zazu informs Mufasa that there are hyenas in the Pride Land, and Mufasa goes to investigate. Simba then goes to visit his salty Uncle Scar, who tricks Simba into going to the elephant graveyard past the limits of the Pride Land, because he's getting ready to set Simba up for something horrible. Simba and his best friend Nala, under the guise of going to the waterhole, head towards the elephant graveyard, but are escorted by Zazu, who informs them that they are intended to be married, much to they are separated from Zazu, head to the graveyard, where they are intercept intercepted by Ed, Banzai, and Shenzi. These are some of the hyenas, and are nearly killed before being saved by Mufasa, all while Scar is watching. And we kind of learn now that Scar is working with the hyenas. Mufasa sends Nala home with Zazu and explains to Simba that there is more to being king than just being brave. Um, 
Scar then informs the hyenas as well as the audience, again, very elaborately, um, that they are going to work together to kill Mufasa and Simba. The next day, Scar lures Simba into his trap, telling him that Mufasa has a surprise for Simba before unleashing a stampede upon Simba, which leads to the arrival of Mufasa and he rescues his son. While climbing rocks to get away from the stampede, Mufasa looks to Scar for help, however is thrown back into the stampede by his brother and is then killed. Upon finding his father's body, Simba is told by Scar it is his fault for his father's death and that he should run away and never return, which Simba does, leaving Scar to rule as king as the pride believes that both the king as well as the heir to the throne, being Simba, they believe that they are both dead. Um, the hyenas fail to kill Simba and instead just let him go, figuring we're never going to see him again. Simba, abandoned and confused, meets Timon and Pumbaa, who teach him their way of life, and we watch Simba grow up living the life of Hakuna Matata. We see that there's no food or water in the Pride Land since Scar has taken over, and even the hyenas are partially starting to turn against him. Rafiki, who we saw earlier in the film, uh, has a premonition that Simba is alive and will return to take his rightful place as king of the Pride Land. We then see Pumbaa being stalked by a lion before Simba saves the day, but it turns out it is Nala all grown up. She tells him that Scar told, really, everybody in the Pride Land that Simba was dead, and that he needs to return to be their king. Timon points out to Pumbaa that the two are clearly in love, which they too realize. Um... Nala tells uh, uh, Simba that Scar basically ruined everything. As I said, um, there's no food, there's no water. Um, but Simba refuses to return, and Nala heads home, very much disappointed in him. Simba heads off on his own again and is conflicted again, but finds Rafiki, who tells Simba that his father is alive and shows him where he can find him. Um, as it turns out... Um, he basically tells Simba that your father is alive in you. And when Simba sees his father, and it's sort of a premonition in the sky, um, his father tells him to remember who he is because he has forgotten who he is. He has forgotten his father. So Simba goes back to the Pride Land to take his place as king and face his past. Upon his return, Simba sees the devastation and returns to Pride Rock and tells everybody that Mufasa's death was his fault. Scar also tells Simba that he, in fact, killed Mufasa, leading to a battle between they never return, but after Scar decides he'd rather fight, he is bested by Simba and is left to be killed by the hyenas. Simba heads back to Pride Rock, takes his rightful place as king, the Pride Land returns to its glorious state in time for, uh, for uh, Rafiki to present Simba and Nala's newly born cub, and the circle of life continues. From the jump, this film is absolutely incredible, and it's a mix of animation and music. I mean, literally from the first shot. They are so tied together in this movie, uh, which leads me to my first note that if Favreau does not attack that first sunset with the big note, 
right off the rip, I'm walking out of the theater. Yeah, and I remember when we saw the live-action remake of Beauty and the Beast, our biggest gripe was that they didn't get the chandelier shot. Um, This would be the equivalent of missing the chandelier shot. Without question. I remember vividly being a kid, watching this in the theaters. My dad took my brother and I to see it, and I vividly remember the hair standing up on the back of my neck at the end of that opening sequence where it just goes... Boom, and you get the Lion King title card. And it's the first time, because when the movie came out, I was like eight years old. It's the first time a film ever had that impact on me. I love that they saved that title for after the opening number, because it, it, it definitely adds an impact to it. I remember same thing. We saw this in the theater, um, and I'll never forget it. When when I was younger, um, my dad's parents had moved to New Jersey and we used to go visit them probably every other month. And on one of our visits, we saw this with my grandmother and my aunt and my grandmother, who is going to be 100 this coming November. I remember her reactions to it most of all. I mean, my parents were blown away, but, you know, for her, who grew up in the era of, you know, Snow White. And Sleeping Beauty, this was just like mind blowing. And um, I mean, we loved this movie as a kid, almost to a point where I remember my brother watched it a lot. And I don't want to say that I got sick of it, but it wasn't one that I would revisit in later years. Like when I was a teenager, like I would go back and watch Little Mermaid. I would go back. I'd go back and watch like the princess movies of my generation. Um So I hadn't really seen this in a while and I feel like I got so much more out of it upon this viewing than I ever have. And not just because obviously, you know, I'm looking for show content, but I was just, it was just watching it with just a fresh set of eyes this time around. I also think that the subject matter is very heavy and we'll get to it in just a few minutes. Mm. But I feel like this movie ages very well in that you can appreciate it as a kid. And I've said this on the show before about a lot of movies. You really appreciate it as a kid because there's an, there's enough there for a kid where they enjoy it. And they, but it mean, it's so much deeper as an adult because there are just some themes in this that you don't appreciate as a child. But even just past the story, the animal movements are absolutely incredible. The god rays on Simba as he's being held up by Rafiki, I think, like it still gets to me in the scene. And knowing what we know now about the Disney company, and I sort of mentioned it before, the song Circle of Life, and really the whole theme of the film revolving around the circle of life, it's so ironic when you think about what Disney was going through at the time. We mentioned at the start of the show, this was sort of the end of the Disney renaissance. This was Frank Wells had passed away, and this was sort of the the breakup between Roy Disney, Michael Eisner, and Jeffrey Katzenberg. It's that circle of life. It's so poetic. Right, because you remember as a kid, even when they were doing promo for this movie, they would you know, push the curtain back so you could see the making of a little bit. And their big thing was Jeffrey Katzenberg introducing the movie next to a real lion. And they let you see that they brought these animals into this studio so that the animators could really sketch them out and get them as lifelike as humanly possible. And I remember them leaning on that in the advertising quite a bit. Yeah, so do I. I think... um... 
in in terms of story, this film really explains life and death in a way where most Disney films have not gone so far. And in a way that it sort of... The whole idea of death, whether you're a child or whether you're an adult, is unsettling because it's something that we're all going to face this. Mm -hmm. There's no way around it. We're all going to face it. And like sometimes that's a scary inevitability. But for a lack of better term, this film makes the idea of it far more approachable. When Mufasa explains, when we die, we become the grass, and the antelope eat the grass, and then we eat the antelope, and it's our responsibility in that great circle of life, and it just keeps going and going and going. It will go past our time here. Interesting that you bring it up, because the irony in that is that Mufasa is really the only Disney death that we see play out. I mean... The ongoing joke is that Disney always kills the parents, but this is not just the loss of a parent that we're dealing with. It was a murder that you see play out on screen. This isn't like Frozen where they sink the ship and it's left to your imagination, although you know what happens. This was, it plays out on screen and then you see Simba go back to see the body. Like right, and that, you see him that interact. That was something they never did before. Yeah, his interaction with it, it's brutal. The whole scene is totally, totally brutal. And it goes somewhere that Disney had not gone before. It like, was really like, dark. You, you have a corpse. Yes. <laughs> Let's just call it what it is. But what I like about this, the entire thing that sets this up is the scene with. Mufasa and Simba. This is after he rescues them from the elephant graveyard. It screams foreshadowing. It screams it. But it's done so intentionally that as as odd as this sounds, it doesn't cheapen the film as intentional as it is. I agree with you. It doesn't cheapen it, but you're right. I feel like the way Mufasa tries to teach Simba it keeps revolving around death every time he tries to teach him a lesson. And it almost goes beyond him trying to prepare him to be king. It almost feels that sometimes like he knew he was going to die. That's kind right. of the impression that I got sometimes. And maybe that's also because one thing that I picked up this time around is that obviously we know that Scar is evil. But I feel like because he's such a fun villain you lose sometimes how truly evil he is. And they're talking about him being the outcast of the family. And there's even a couple of throwaway lines about how he's, he's skinnier and he doesn't yes. uh, physically match Mufasa. But after Mufasa comes to chew him out for not showing up to Simba's presentation, um, Zazu makes the comment of there's one in every family and Mufasa agrees with him. So you almost it, it's very, very subtle, but you get the impression that Mufasa has just as many issues with Scar as Scar's jealousy towards him. Without question. And it's funny you mention that because that was one of my notes about Scar's. He's visibly skinnier and he's trying to eat the mouse and the mouse gets away because Zazu interferes. 
just it was it was such a nice touch that these animators put in there because that's detail mm. that I feel like a lot of other studios would have overlooked. They would have just said make him look like a lion. Definitely something I never picked up on as a kid. Yeah, he's very gaunt in his jaw, in his neck, and in his body. Yeah, and I kind of thought that that was them, you know, stylizing a villain because sometimes the angles in his face are very reminiscent of Jafar to me. Yes. Um, even the, the curly goatee a little bit, how mm -hmm. they kind of shape his mane. Um, but that also does serve to driving the point home that he's, you know, M Mufasa is definitely more physical than he is without question um you know simba in in theory when you when you look at how he's he's a bratty kid in the beginning mm. he's not totally unlikable because as bratty as he is, as mischievous as he is, when they do have that interaction at the elephant uh, graveyard, he tries to save Zazu and does the old pick on somebody your own size. It's just that he's in over his head. Right. But, I mean, he is, I mean, he is sort of a selfish character, but he also tries to stick up for the little guy. Definitely. And he is the little guy. They playfully and tactfully developed him as a character without making him dislikable, because for all intents and purposes, he should be. I actually think he's more likable as a kid and grows to be more dislikable as an adult because he's not accepting his responsibilities. Um, I, I see where you say that, but I, I sort of give him a pass there because as he's grown older, he's been living this Hakuna Matata life with Timon and Pumbaa, who... You know, as the song says, no worries. They're very lackadaisical. They they don't really have any responsibilities. They they really they basically don't care. Right, but I I guess that's the thing that bothers me is that Simba is hiding behind it because it it's a crutch for him. It's he he has embraced this new lifestyle, but. I don't think it's because he truly believes it. I think it's because he needed something to latch onto because he's traumatized by what happened and didn't have anyone to talk to about it. Well, he had he needed an escape. We know that. And he found his escape. And I I don't know. I feel like he bought into it. I think that he was I think he wanted to be king, but he was so regimented in his family life that when he finally had that release where he could just do whatever he wanted, because that's that's really all he wanted anyway. That's all he wanted as king was to, I'm just going to do whatever I want. That's true. But I still feel like he was hiding behind something because that point does later get driven home mm -hmm. when uh, there's that really incredibly powerful scene where he's when he sees Mufasa's form take shape. Yes. And he confronts the stars and he's yelling you know, and instead of just yelling out in anger, he says, you said you'd always be there for me. And I feel like that's the first time that he grieves and actually addresses what happened. He's he's definitely internalized a lot up to that point. Right. Um, what I like about that scene actually is Rafiki's lesson in pain. I think that that's something that we should all 
learn from and we could all learn from when he cracks him upside the head with his stick and he goes, that hurts. He goes, well, what difference does it make? It's in the past. It's what you do, how you learn from it, and then swings it again and he ducks. There's a couple of great lines in that scene when uh, when he asks him what, when Simba asks Rafiki what Asante Sana means and uh, he says, you're a baboon and I'm not. And basically just calls him out on everything of you're yep. acting stupid and you need to deal with your reality. And uh, yeah, the, the, the past, you can either run from it or learn from it. I mean, that transcends Disney. Absolutely. It's, it's a brilliant quote. We've talked in the past about how Walt Disney himself made sure that there were certain life lessons that were inserted into his stories and it's almost as if, and, and this film was released, oh, about, about 30 years after Walt Disney passed away. I think this was 28 years after Walt Disney passed away. But it's almost as if Walt himself had a hand in this film. Yeah. It, it feels like he touched it. It's the attention to detail. It's the life lessons. It's the coming of age story. I, it's I, the retelling because essentially this is Hamlet, but it was that wasn't what they were intending to do. They only realized the similarities to Hamlet after the fact. This might be the most Walt Disney Walt Disney Pictures film since his death. Yeah, I would agree with that. And he had nothing to do with it, which is incredible. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I said before that I just, I think it grows, I, I grow more fond of it, and I think it, it grows deeper and deeper as you get older and the more that I see it. Um, but I just, you know, with, without spoiling my final synopsis of the film, I just do think that, I think the dialogue is great. I think the story is phenomenal. And this and and the movie doesn't get slow. It never really hits a lull and it doesn't really get boring for me either. No, never. You know, it's one of those movies where you know, if if you watch any of the making of stuff, they trim a little bit out, but even the stuff they trimmed out, they probably could have left in. I just don't see there's not a lot of room for error in this and I, I don't think that there are a lot of I, I just don't think that, there's not a lot of stuff for a lack of better term there's not a lot of fluff in there no just this to is fill time. one of those films where everything that happens pushes the story forward especially in the music too the music to me is what makes this film it's the music in conjunction with the animation we talked about it during the opening scene, during Circle of Life. And this film, music written by Tim Rice and Elton John, this comes out after Aladdin, after Little Mermaid, after Beauty and the Beast, where you had Ashman and Mencken writing phenomenal songs. Phenomenal. I go so far as to say the music in this, and we'll go song by song, the music in this film is up there with any song that Howard Ashman and Alan Mankin had written. I go so far as to say it's up there with a Sherman Brothers score as well. Yeah, it amazes me that there are so many beloved songs from this film that came on the heels of the combination of Alan Mankin and Howard Ashman. 
because you think that, you know, and obviously what happened to Howard Ashman was tragic and he passed away before he could even see Beauty and the Beast and Aladdin come to fruition. Uh, you just don't think anything could ever match that. And I, I don't want to necessarily compare the two because I don't feel that that's very fair. But as far as just being a Disney fan and loving the music, um, I, I love the songs from this film just as much. I mean, the three movies are so inherently different that it's almost unfair to compare them. Right, but I feel like just as far as the music being tied to such iconic scenes, yes. it accomplished that without the combination of those two. Yeah. Um, that's where there is a similarity because all three films have incredibly iconic music. Yes. And I would agree with you, this one may be the most in totality from start to finish. Well, I think that's it. With with the three that preceded it, the music is more tied to the characters. This, I think, is tied to the visuals over. This almost feels like a music video in some areas. So you have, like, let's take Little Mermaid, for example. You have Under the Sea. You have Part of Your World. Those obviously being the, the, the two big ones. And then Kiss the Girl. It's a great song. It's a wonderful number. It's beautifully animated. Doesn't hold the same weight as the other two. Agreed. In Aladdin, you have A Whole New World. And you have um, Friend Like Me. But One Jump doesn't hold up with those two. I disagree with that. I, I, don't, I, I don't think so. I, it's good. It's very good. But take take those two films, take those six songs, and then go Circle of Life, Can You Feel the Love Tonight, Nakuna Matata. That's, that's the difference where this one, to me, the music is more iconic in its totality because it's one after another after another where all three of them are sort of interchangeable in terms of their status as iconic i see what you're saying do you get what i mean i do whereas in the other two films you have two clear standouts i don't think you have one here most people will argue it's akuna matata but i i don't think you have a clear standout yeah see i don't know because circle of life is such a powerful way to kick this off and you know can you feel the love tonight uh, that that transcended disney i mean elton john still plays it at concerts it was a it's huge, a huge, huge wedding huge, song huge and it was a big it was a top 40 big hit when it came out i mean it was all over the radio yes um but let's start with circle of life that's one of those things i mean just the opening of this film was so impressive i think you know, the first time you see it as a kid, you're just so blown away by the animation. It loses some of the subtlety in the sequence as a whole. I mean, mm -hmm. I mean, the, the, the lyrics are amazing. Not just because the song is beautifully written, but it does really set up the entire film. So it's a great jumping off point. But um, what what the animators did with the, the colors is something that blows me away. They really played with the warm and the cool colors. And um, it was funny because we were sitting there watching some of the behind the scenes footage and uh, they 
painstakingly went through frame by frame and these these story artists were like arguing over the different not not a heated argument but the way that they picked apart every detail in certain colors is just amazing and like I'm just sitting there because you know recently I've sat in these story meetings myself not in animation but like I've been there I've been in the rooms when everybody's got a creative viewpoint I can only imagine how long we got to see a little snippet of this conversation this meeting must have gone on for hours and like I sat there and I I felt the pain of it because again it's a it's a lot of creative input and you know you're arguing over silly things that may not even make the final cut but I think it was time well spent here because you know they're playing with the sun rising and that's going to create a lot of warm colors but they contrast it to still make it feel like you know that early morning right before the sun rises and it's still kind of dark and to, to show like how far some of these animals are traveling to get to this event, they'll jump from the light, like touching the giraffe and then go back to the antelopes and they're still in silhouette because the sun hasn't hit them yet. And it's just something that I only caught this time around is, is how they're pushing all of the animals to get to pride rock. Right. And you know, even in scenes where, you know, you see the haze and the rain is absolutely amazing towards the end of the film where the storm clouds roll over into Pride Rock right before Simba goes back. It's absolutely brilliant because it does set the scene up. It's almost the colors in the film almost act as an additional character. They do. Yeah, because, you know, then later when we see Timon and Pumbaa, it's very bright. I mean, obviously, you're in a whole different setting. It's lush. It's green. It's almost more rainfall you you could make the argument that if this film is taking place in Africa you're you're going from you know the the savanna to like the Congo because it's just two different climates you want to know how else i i can prove that this song is just so or uh, the music the songs in this film are just so iconic one after another after another because i forgot to mention i just can't wait to be king i didn't even mention that song and you know what that one too because when i hear that what's the first thing i think of philhar magic at the magic kingdom yes because it's it's done so well in that attraction and i didn't even mention it I didn't even mention it. Right, when you were going through the catalog before. No, but speaking of color, that that's another oh. amazing sequence because it's not just, it, it kind of takes you out of the film a little bit, but I love that it draws from all of these colors and patterns. Right, it, it's it, very Like it draws stylized. from the culture, yeah. Um, and it's also, again, you know, that's something that, because it's such a fun song, um you do lose the purpose a little bit. Like it's a great character development song because you are establishing that Simba just wants his way and everything to be how he wants it. But the whole purpose of it is to ditch Zazu and create a diversion so that they can get to the elephant graveyard. Yep. And it's such a strong character song. You forget how much it serves the plot as well. Yeah, absolutely. And again, you want to talk about jumping songs to go focus on the other three? I know you've been waiting almost a year Ugh. to discuss Be Prepared, 
But similarly to I Just Can't Wait to Be King, it I don't even mention it. When I think of this movie, I think of those three. But similarly, this song, I think, is as iconic as any of those others. Well, I mean, the villain's songs are different because they're in a class all by itself. And that's why I, I was thinking about this when you brought up the music before, but I wasn't going to start this argument because I, I could do an entire episode on Be Prepared just because I love it so much. Um, and we haven't even really delved into the characters too much where I've even gotten to talk about Scar. He is one of my top five Disney villains. I, I, I don't want to rank them, but my top five would be Scar, Jafar, Ursula, Cruella, and Captain Hook in no particular order. It changes from day to day. Um, but as far as the songs go, it's this in Poor Unfortunate Souls. And I think th- this might even have the slight edge just because it is so unbelievably well done. Um, I think part of that is because Scar has this fastidiousness about him that carries through the entire song. He almost at one point he gets like Muppety to me. There's that point where he like dives behind the rock and it reminds me, I I'm not even kidding I think it's when he says prepare for sensational news. It reminds me of Miss Piggy. Like it's a Miss Piggy move where she just like leans away from the camera. I I can't really describe it. But um, he is probably the most theatrical villain. And that's a total compliment to Jeremy Irons. It's almost disturbing how much he smiled during his recordings. Oh, he was having some fun with this. And it it shows. It it definitely shows in the voice performance. And again, I, I think you lose some brilliant lyrics and plot because the number is just so over the top with all like that, that perfect Disney villain green shooting up out of the ground. But um, it definitely drives the story forward because, yes, we've established by this point that Scar is evil and you know that he his intent is to harm Mufasa and Simba. But what you don't really realize is that he is like militarizing the hyenas because yes. that's how he's going to carry this out because he needs numbers. When they are marching past oh, him, it so reminds good. me of some of those dictators from the world wars. You see the footage of like a hundred thousand troops marching and they're like standing on a balcony somewhere, just overlooking them with some salute and they're just For marching sure. past them. That's that's the image you get here. And Scar is so eccentric Ugh. and he's so theatrical that you you just can't help but really buy into how evil he is because he is so intentional. You almost root for him because he doesn't care. He's just so engaging. Right. But I, I think that's one of those things that you lose as a kid too, is because he's, the song is so over the top and so dramatic. You don't realize how easy it is for him to take over because he's only one person and and you just know he's the villain and he's going to do it. But what you don't realize is that the hyenas are what keep the lions in check moving forward. That is what destroys the entire pride land. And speaking of subtlety that I, I don't think is appreciated enough in this film, um, 
when he does manage to take over and he announces that Dainas and the lions are going to start working together, um, it's a crescent moon that is up over Pride Rock. And it's it's a broken circle, essentially. And it right. sets up how everything is going to be destroyed. And it's just one of those little touches like where you said that that's only something that Walt would have done. Exactly. And worth noting, Jeremy Irons, believe it or not, mm. did not make it to the end of this song. You told me this the other day and it blew my mind. When he was recording this song and he got to the line, I think it was you something to the effect You won't of, get a sniff without me. You won't get a sniff without me. He blew out a vocal cord. And who finished the song? Jim Cummings. Who voices Ed in this movie. Right. And you all know him specifically as Winnie the Pooh and Tigger too. And you and and he was he was Darkwing Duck. You know, Jim Cummings is so insanely talented that he was able to finish that song. And even though it's been pointed out to me that it's not Jeremy Irons, I still have problems believing it's not Jeremy Irons. I mean, he was so perfect. It's so seamless because the point the point where Jeremy Irons blew out his vocal cord is where the song does change at the end because it goes from almost like a a sing a talking kind of singing to like the bigger notes at the end and the bigger notes are what Jim Cummings had to pull off there are there's maybe one word where i caught it where he sounds a little like tigger um but if you wouldn't have told me that i would have never ever known never in a million it's years it's seamless it's amazing yeah he, so he did an absolutely Phenomenal job there. It was, um, I'm just remembering now because I was trying to remember when he says, be prepared for the murkiest scam. Murkiest. I, I was like, mm, there's a little tiger coming through. Murky was murky for you? Yes. Um, we also then move on to, again, this, a song that most people would argue is the most iconic song in this film and that is Hakuna Matata and is I there, will argue that is there anybody is there anybody better than Ernie Sambella and and Nathan Lane I can, okay well Ernie Sambella Wayne Knight and Jason Alexander are kind of the same person in my mind so you couldn't that's have not Three more different sounding actors. No, it's not to downplay Ernie Sambella, but when I when I think of the cast, he's not someone that stands out to me. I mean, I love Pumbaa, but when you compare him to the rest of the names in this film, he's kind of one that that falls through the crack. And maybe that's because I'm thinking of, you know, growing up on Whoopi Goldberg, obviously, you know, sister act. She was huge in the nineties. Cheech Marin had been in Oliver and company. Exactly. And then obviously, well, this was news to you. You only put the two and two together now about Matthew Broderick and Nathan Lane, but it's the thing is that this film came out before the producers and, you know, being from New York, I remember when that play came out. You couldn't get tickets. No, you couldn't. And and it's kind of like they are like a package deal now. 
Right, but they didn't even know each other when they made this movie, and they they didn't even have a recording session together. No, they were like passing each other in the halls. They knew who the other was, but to Nathan Lane, it was like, oh, there's that punk kid from Ferris Bueller. Right. And that's why they wanted Matthew Broderick, because originally Simba was kind of cast in a Ferris Bueller-esque role. Yes, because after Mufasa dies, he was kind of supposed to be he was going to be Scar's like sidekick almost that like didn't necessarily care and was kind of phoning it in because his father was gone, but like allowed everything to happen watching from the sidelines. Right. And, um, Hakuna Matata is a wonderful phrase. It's a wonderful, wonderful phrase. And it's, it's another one similar to Rafiki's lesson. Hakuna Matata is something that everybody could live by every day. Just living with no worries and being carefree and letting the bad stuff roll off your back and just finding the positives in life. Like if Jimmy Buffett wrote a song for Disney, this would be it. I'm sort of surprised in a way that they Jimmy Buffett never, not, not for this per se, but that Jimmy Buffett has never been tapped for a Disney film. Never seen it. Honestly, I would have rather him done Moana than Lin-Manuel Miranda. Right. And we'll, we'll get there. get there eventually. Um, I want to talk about the sequence as a whole because we started saying, you know, the use of color in this scene is beautiful. And it's it's definitely a contrast to the Pride Lands. Um, you get your multiplane camera use uh, in the jungle. You know, they definitely, I think, pulled from from Jungle Book a little bit with the hanging vines and things like that. Um, but it, it definitely all works. It enhances the scene. It looks really good. Um, one of the things that I found kind of interesting, you had mentioned it earlier where in the opening number, there's the God rays on Simba. And one of the themes, whether it was done intentionally or not, they spotlight Simba quite a bit because it happens in, uh, can't wait to be king. It's it's yeah. a lyric in Can't Wait to Be King. And then when Simba, young Simba, starts singing Kuna Matata, they throw the spotlight down through the jungle. And I was kind of surprised they did that because I thought they were really using it as a device when Simba was himself. And now he's not anymore because he's just been through this horrible tragedy. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, it's, it's sort of interesting that you bring that up because you're right, especially when you see Simba as an older man or an older lion, I should say, he's not interested in being king anymore. So he's sort of taken a backseat to being in the spotlight. I wonder if maybe that's why they did it so much when he was a younger cub. Because he still wanted it, yeah, and and I guess at this point he still did because now he's kind of met these new friends that have taken him under his wing, under their wing, and um, well, not under their wing, that was Zazu, um, but I guess because he's trying to embrace this new way of life, he's not he's not jaded yet, so I I guess that's it. It's not just that it's a spotlight shown on younger Simba, but it's, I guess it's when 
he's motivated. And he's still a little angsty. A little. Right? Um, I have one beef with this song, though. Okay. And it's it's not even, I mean, I guess it's not really fair to judge. We're, we're only supposed to be judging what is on film. Um, but I am kind of disappointed about one of the cuts. Uh, initially, when this song was written, Timon had the first verse. And he's talking about being a meerkat and all he does is dig. And it's, you know, pretty much similar to Pumbaa um, with his gas issues. Um, It's basically Timon's lament. And I kind of wish that they both had a verse to show what brought them together. Yeah, I think that if that's if that's the worst thing you have to say about the film or about the song. I think they did a pretty good job there. Absolutely. No, and it's it's funny, too, because we were talking about the Nathan Lane, Matthew Broderick thing. I always thought Timon and Pumbaa were, when I was a kid, Nathan Lane and Matthew Broderick because it was so ingrained in my head from the producers that they came as like this package deal. I do agree with you that it, it was always sort of, it stood out as strange to me that Pumbaa got a lament, to take your phrase, but Timon didn't. But I think I always sort of played that off as Timon was always kind of front and center anyway. So you didn't need to focus yeah. on him anymore. And Timon is kind of like always lamenting. Right. Although because they gave Pumbaa the verse, I almost wish they had brought that full circle at the end because ultimately he's what drives away the three hyenas. And it's because he busts into the cave and you don't see the scuffle between them. But the next thing you know, the hyenas are running out. Yeah. I wish he gassed them out. Um, nah, I'm good with that not happening. No? Nope. We're above a fart joke? Yep. I'm not. I think <laughs> I, I think that would have cheapened this film so badly. I've probably you know what? In fact I go so far as to say I've probably never disagreed with you so vehemently on this show in almost a year we've been doing it. Yeah, but I mean for everything that Disney always manages to tie up in a bow, I mean, okay. That's the thing that needs to be no, tied I'm up? No, I'm saying, okay, Pumbaa found his mojo and he was able to beat up the hyenas. But they said he could clear a room. Why not drive the hyenas out with that? Wrong. <laughs> I, 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 can't, I can't disagree with you any more than I disagree with you on that. I think he should embrace his power. What I embrace about this scene, you know, not just the song, but the scene is, and I loved it from the moment I saw it when they're walking across that log and they show the passage of time. So good. You want to talk about iconic. And then you get um, Simba singing as an adult, which is Joseph Williams, who's the lead singer from Toto, who is best known for their song, Africa. May I just point out. And, and he's also John Williams' son. He's John Williams' son, the John Williams. But you you had said to me when we were watching this, it sort of seems like a miss that they wouldn't have had Matthew Broderick sing. Because we know Matthew he Broderick can, can sing. sing. Yeah. But I'm wondering if... See, here's the thing. I, I don't know if Matthew Broderick always knew how to sing or if he learned how to sing, if he took vocal lessons when he was cast in The Producers. Possibly, because except for, like, 
they they did have kid singers. Um, the yeah. two voice actor Jonathan Taylor no, Thomas JTT was not singing. Did not sing. <laughs> um, you want to talk about an actor of his time? <laughs> yeah, really. And then um, Rowan Atkinson sings. Who, Rowan Atkinson being the voice of Zazu. You know him as Mr. Bean. Exactly. Um, yeah, and everybody else does the voice and sings. Yeah, he's the yeah. It's yeah. It's just strange that Jeremy it, it, Irons does both. Right, Simba's basically the only character that doesn't have the same actor singing as as he does with just regular dialogue. But I'm I'm surprised. I mean, to sing Hakuna Matata, it it doesn't take that much chops to pull it off. I think he could have got away with it. Yeah, but I think it was less for Hakuna Matata and more for the next song, which was "Can You Feel the Love Tonight." And I think you sort of needed that arena rock frontman to sort of carry that song a little bit. He Joseph Williams can carry that ballad. That it's because it's kind of a power ballad. He can do it more than Matthew Broderick. I love yes. Matthew Broderick. I think he's a great song and dance man. And if you if you if you haven't seen him do song and dance, just watch the scene I Wanna Be a Producer and you'll see that he's a song and dance guy. But I don't think as good as he is, I don't think he can carry that song. I don't think he can give that song the soul that Joseph Williams gave it. it yes and no, because Simba and Nala only sing a little piece of that. That's not like a musical number because they they have that little interaction where they're drinking. And then otherwise, it's like a chorus that comes in. But But for the small section that they sing, I don't think Matthew Broderick, as good as he is... I don't think he has the vocal chops. He wouldn't have been soulful enough. He doesn't bless the rains down in Africa. <laughs> oh, God. And, and I mean, for this film, you need to. Yeah. You know what I love about this scene, as much as the song, are the facial expressions on those characters. They mm -hmm. may be the most impressive animation in the film. Nala with that kind of come-hither stare... When and she's in the grass. Yeah, yeah. And and Simba's astonishment when he he kind of comes to the realization as to what is happening to him. Yeah. And what is happening around them. And that's a very much a coming of age moment that he should have had in adolescence, but instead he's having it as an adult. Everything about this scene, from the way it's drawn to the colors to the music, is absolutely fabulous. It's stunning. I mean, it definitely, you know, they use that lush jungle setting where Timon and Pumbaa live to the fullest in this sequence. But um, I want to circle back to what you said about the looks on their faces. You know, we were talking, the the achievement in animation in this film is how lifelike the animals are yes. and how accurate they got. And the movement, like even when they, they like do the bounce and the walks and everything. But what I think gets lost is how amazing the facial expressions are like right before scar pushes Mufasa off. There's an evil look in scars eyes and fear in Mufasa's and to, to get that animation. Like we talked about it a couple of weeks ago with toy story. And I was talking about a look on Woody's face and they were able to achieve that with a computer here. You were able to draw it. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. To do it by hand is phenomenal. Um, what's also phenomenal is, 
side note, is that we've now seen Nathan Lane dress in drag in both real life and animation. <laughs> Go watch The Birdcage. I just had to throw that one out there, by the way. That might be my favorite part of the whole movie. And it's the most ridiculous thing. Okay, you have an issue with Pumbaa clearing out the hyenas because he farts, but but this you're fine with. Yeah, because I don't think it's cheap. No, it's not because the lyrics it's are like br- so obvious. It's not lowbrow. I don't I do not do well with lowbrow humor. I don't find lowbrow humor to be funny. I think I think if somebody's doing lowbrow humor, they're it's almost as if they're talking down to me. Yeah, we just had a whole conversation about go- the Ghostbusters sequel today. Forget it. Yeah. Um no, that 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 whole little it for like the thirty seconds it lasts. It's the funniest part of the whole movie. You Are you waking for some bacon? Come on, you can be a big pig too. I love it. Yeah, I mean, and so, the small world thing is funny too. Yes, even even Zazu singing "I've Got a Lovely Bunch of Coconuts." It's pretty funny. Yeah, um, that's that's one of those things like. I remember as a kid thinking this movie was hilarious just because of that whole sequence. Once they get back to the Pride Lands, even though everything's in shambles, it definitely lightens the the tone a, a lot more. So, yeah, just touching on the screenwriting one more time before we move on here. That's also where the movie is very impressive is that for all intents and purposes, it is very heavy subject matter. Um, but they are very tasteful with where they drop their humor in mm. so that it, it lightens it up just enough where it it doesn't sway too far in any one direction. It's not too tragic, but it's not too much of a comedy. I, I think that the needle is buried basically right in the middle of this movie. Even just with Scar's character as a whole, that he's probably the worst Disney villain. I mean, we, we said that about Cruella DeVille because she's doing something so completely horrible to innocent puppies. But as far as what Scar does, if you put that up against stealing someone's voice or becoming a genie, you killed your brother. That's And tried to kill your nephew. Yeah, the worst thing that you can do. But because he's got such a flamboyance about him... He's still such a likable, funny villain. And like even just the one of the first sequences that he's in when he's like, oh, I shall practice my curtsy. I mean, a lot of that is the voice actor performance, but he just toes that line between evil and humor and it's it's flawless. I still think Cruella DeVille for me sort of takes it because Scar is fueled by jealousy and power. So at least he has a vested interest in that he's going to have power over everybody. Mm. Corella Deville wants a jacket to wear. <laughs> yeah, and that that subject matter hits a little bit close to home. Yeah, she's going to kill over a hundred puppies so that she can wear a jacket. Um, Just saying. Well, we talked about Scar. Let's talk about some of the other characters. You want to start with Mufasa? Sure. Perfect casting. Perfect casting. James and I'm Earl so, oh, thank God they kept him. Yeah, I'm very happy. And I, I like the fact that he is, he's very wise, but not without flaw. Mm. He, he admits that he gets scared. He's, he admits that he's only tough when he has to be. 
for a lack of a better term, he's a very he's very human. Yeah, no, and I love that Mufasa like always breaks down for Simba because he he does do that you know that that really strong parenting device of I need you to respect me but I do want to be your friend too because he's got a great relationship with Simba. He's stoic without being over the top. Yes. So it it doesn't come off as cheesy. You know, sometimes you get you get the all-knowing mm. being in the film. It, it, perfect and it is it is a parody for all intents and purposes. It's a parody. The Wizard and the Wizard of Oz. Yes. He's he's fake. He's a phony. Right. And that's what makes that character in that film with that screenwriting brilliant. It's that it's it's a joke. It's a farce. Right. But sometimes you get a movie where it's just too much, but they're trying to take themselves too seriously. Right. And he's always got his soft side for Simba. And, you know, it shows that he can still be a great and powerful king, but yes, it definitely humanizes him because at the end of the day, he just wants to be to pal around with his kid. Right. We talked about Scar and Simba almost at nauseum at this point. I, again, whole episode on Scar and be prepared. Yes. Scar. I, I just, I remember as a kid thinking Scar towards the end of that movie, when he's leaping through the smoke, just looks like the uh, old logo for the NHL Florida Panthers. And I wish that someone would make that jersey. If somebody made a jersey, a Florida Panther jersey, but put Scar on there, I would buy it. And I'm not even a Florida Panthers fan. No, but, but that would be pretty cool it, to wear I around would, the parks. Just to have it, I would buy it. Um, I said before, you know, Timon and Pumbaa, who better? I mean, great comic relief, necessary for the movie. And I, I think that as lackadaisical as they are, I do think that they teach Simba a lesson. And they're loyal. They're, yeah. Because they don't know, you know, Nala tries to attack them. That's how she meets them. She's trying to, you know, bring some food back to the Pride Lands and she goes after Pumbaa. Um, And they really don't know anything about Simba's past because he won't talk about it. All they know is that he's their friend and they're going to help him. Nala, too, as a kid, loyal loyal to a fault. Mm. You know, she's going to go off with anything that he says. And I like the fact that it's, other than Rafiki and, and Simba seeing his father, Nala does put him in his place, and that sort of sets up the rest of the movie. Yeah, she's the only one who's ever really able to get through to him. Right. Um, Speaking of Rafiki... I love Rafiki. I think he's one of the most underrated Disney characters because everybody remembers him doing the lift in the beginning. But to me, Rafiki steals the show in in the scene you know that we were talking about before when he makes Simba realize who he is and what he's supposed to do. Rafiki gets overlooked because people people recognize him for that opening scene because Rafiki's not in this movie a lot. No, he's not. He's only in four scenes, five scenes in the movie. The opening number. The end. The end. When he has the vision of Simba coming back, Mm. his interaction with Simba, and then he shows up in the final battle with Scar. 
Right. That's it. That's the only five times you see Rafiki in the film. But he's such a great character because he's that all-knowing being and he's got these premonitions, but he is so goofy. And he's a great comic relief. Like, even when he comes up to fight, he fights off some hyenas, but he's, you know, he's like goofing off doing it. it he almost, I think one of them, he, he almost hits by accident. He's slightly unhinged. Yes. And that that's what makes him brilliant. Yes. Um, and then we mentioned them before, the hyenas, Banzai, Shenzi, and Ed. Um, more great casting. More great casting. Whoopi Goldberg and Cheech Marin and Jim Cummings. Interestingly enough, what got Nathan Lane and Ernie Sambella to be Timon and Puma was they were initially reading for the hyenas and they realized what great chemistry they had. So they cast them as Timon and Pumbaa. Right, well, Nathan Lane originally had read for Zazu. I want to talk about another fantastic oh, character. I, I love Zazu. I love Rowan Atkinson. Again, absolutely perfect casting. That and just the dry humor that he brings. Like, he's he's just so over everything. Like, he loves his job and he loves being the king's major domo. But, you know, just even when he has to take them to the watering hole... He doesn't want to be there any more than Simba and Nala want a babysitter. Or like when it, it's such a subtle line when the hyenas get him and he's like, oh, no, not the birdie boiler. Like, it sounds yeah. like they've done this before. Yeah. Like he's the kid like that's gotten like beat up on the back of the bus. Yeah. And he's like, oh, here we go again. I love yeah. it. I love it. Um, so I think to wrap it up. For me. Top five all-time animated Disney film. Well, it checks every box. I, I I haven't said this very often, but I do think this is a perfect film. I think it tells a complete uh, complete story. And I said earlier, the culmination of the Disney Renaissance. I mean, this it, it's so poetic to close that chapter in Disney history. And it was this film that did it. It's almost as if they were making a film about themselves. I'm sorry that chapter had to end. Uh, I agree with you. This is, I think the only other times we've said it was with toy story and with Aladdin is that this is, I think we called them near perfect. I, I would say this is perfect. This, I think the only two films that I said perfect for would be this and Mary Poppins. Oh, yes, Mary Poppins. I think we did say it at that point. And, and my opinion of that hasn't changed. I, I still believe as great as this is, as great as Toy Story is, as great as Aladdin is, I still think Mary Poppins is the best film that the Walt Disney Company up to this point in time has put out. I it's almost is... not fair to compare, though, because, because Walt action. touched that. And that was the pinnacle of his career. But it's like you said before, this is the best movie that they have put out without Walt. It's I said it before. It's the most Walt Disney film without Walt Disney. Yeah. Um, but we're interested to know what you all have to say about it. And this is why we're cautiously optimistic about the Favreau remake. Uh, on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Monorail Radio. Uh, exciting news. We have a giveaway this week. Yes, we do. Very excited to announce this one because we have the live action remake coming out this week. 
done by John Favreau, hits his second go-around with a live-action remake. The first time he did it, we mentioned it earlier, reviewed on episode number three, the live-action remake of The Jungle Book. We also reviewed The Jungle Book in episode number two of uh, Monoreal Radio almost a year ago. You can go back and listen to it. We have a copy of The Jungle Book that we would like to give away. So we're going to run this contest for the next uh, two weeks. Uh, So that would be running from now until 11.59 p.m. on Monday, July 29th. Very easy way for you to enter. Uh, First, you have to like or follow Monoreal Radio on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. That's step number one. Step number two, when we post an episode link or when we post about the contest, number one, like the post. Number two, tag a friend. Yes, that's how we're going to tell the difference between whether you just like the post or you're actually trying to enter this contest. Yeah, because we had a couple of people that were like, you won the contest. Like, we've done a few contests. And we Like, you won. They'd be like, oh, I didn't know I entered. That's on us. Yeah. So. To avoid confusion. Follow the social, like the post, and tag a friend. That's in a link for the show, anything regarding the show, basically anything we post from now until the contest is over. And of course, if we post about the contest itself, go ahead and do that. Um, News this week, a big opening for the 4th of July weekend. Uh, We reviewed uh, Spider-Man Homecoming last week. This week, Spider-Man Far From Home which we saw today, you can see our monoreel in a minute on Twitter and Instagram, takes home the number one spot at the box office. And Toy Story has number two. I wonder when the last time... I mean, now, now here's the thing. Technically speaking, it's Marvel Studios. It wasn't released under the Disney... It's not... Banner. It's, and Sony has a big hand in it still, too. Right. But for all intents and purposes, it's Disney's IP. I wonder the last time a studio had number one, number two at the box office. I wonder when the last time Disney had done that. Uh, I want to say it was Pirates. Pirates went back to back with something. I can't remember. Um, But I think that came out like either Memorial Day or 4th of July and it hung on because it was the big summer release and then they put another animation out like right behind it, I think. Or it might have been like a... Ooh, it might have been Pirates in a Pixar could be if you know the answer to that you can go ahead and let us know on instagram twitter and facebook again at monoreal radio more news this week we have rise of the resistance opening at galaxy's edge at walt disney world on december the 4th which i'm kind of salty about because we miss it by about three weeks and that's supposed to be like an insanely immersive experience i think this is the one that they're saying it runs like a half an hour or 40 minutes long from start to finish it's crazy that's good i'm i'm glad that you're getting that much of an experience though at galaxy's edge and it's something that you are going to be able to like take your time with um but i'm excited because i did just recently book a trip for our loyal listener leah um she's going on her disney mini moon which i believe starts the day before that opens so they'll get to see us and uh i'm definitely excited to hear back on that um but if you want to book a trip down to the parks 
book with me. Um, I will help you plan everything. You can get in touch with me either through our social media or you can shoot me an email at j.zolezzi, that's Z-O-L-E-Z-Z-I, at magicalvacationplanner.com. For Jackie, I'm Sean. Have a magical week, everyone. On behalf of Monoreal Radio, we'd like to thank you for joining us. We'll see you at the movies, the stuff dreams are made of.